Welcome to Money Memoirs, a taboo-breaking interview series sharing intimately uncensored conversations about money. I am Barry Tesler, a financial therapist, author, and creator of The Art of Money, my year-long money school and global community. Join me as I connect with brave folks from all walks of life to explore their experiences with money from their greatest struggles to triumphant celebrations, to lessons learned, and unexpected discoveries along the way. These interviews are raw, heartfelt money stories. They're vulnerable, inspiring, and always authentic. These interviews are a snapshot of the personal connection and practical support you'll find in my year-long money school, The Art of Money. The Art of Money is a holistic framework that integrates money healing, money practices, and money maps. And it blends together therapeutic body-based practices with so many real life tools that you need to create healthy, sustainable change in your money life. If you'd like to learn more, head to barrytesler.com. For now, get comfy and cozy for another intimately uncensored money memoir. Welcome to Money Memoirs. These interviews that I'm doing are a series of stories about people's relationship to money, the kind of stories that you almost never hear because we all tend to keep them private unless we're talking to a close, dear friend. I've invited a handful of colleagues and friends to these interviews, and they've been gracious and brave enough to let everyone listen in as they share some scenes from their money life. I'm Barry Tesla Linden, financial therapist, mamapreneur, and the founder of The Art of Money, and the new author of The Art of Money, A Life-Changing Guide to Financial Happiness. Today, my guest is Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin. She is the founder of the Gaia Project for Women's Leadership and the CEO of Gaia Project Consulting. You can learn more about Elizabeth on my site, and it's a huge honor to welcome her here today. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello, Barry. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you so much. Okay, so... We are just going to dive in. And Great. Yeah. Okay. So my first question is, what is the main emotion that comes up around money for you? So what emotion do you see frequently happen? What pattern of emotions, what cocktail of emotions comes up for you? Yeah, it's, you know, it's such a fascinating place to start because honestly, this has changed for me very dramatically in about the last 18 months. So, you know, for a long, long time, I would say that the most dominant emotion that came up for me was one of shame. Um, and, you know, I know from having worked with you and followed you for so long <laughs> that money shame is a topic that you, that is, um, I, I don't want to say near and dear to your heart, but certainly front and center um, in terms of your work. Um, but it has really shifted quite dramatically in the last 18 months to more of a place of pride. Um, and that's taken an awful lot of work on my part, and it's also coincided with um, a really exponential expansion of my business. Um, and, you know, it's, it, I, I, will, I will say that, um, you know, the shame grows out of 
the story of my professional life, really, because I began um, my professional life as a Wall Street lawyer, um, and I made an awful lot of money very, very young, and um, looked back on that time period as one where, um, for various reasons, many of them having to do with my family history, and I'm more than happy to share that, um, but where my relationship to money was one of um, uh, spending, basically, I think is the kind way to put it. You know, I don't, I had no perception of how to save. And, you know, despite the fact that I was raised in a household with a father who is, um, to this day, um, a financial wizard, um, I think he's also of a generation where um, his perception was that he, and he and I have spoken about this since, so I'm not sharing anything out of turn, but I think his perception was that he didn't need to teach his daughters about money because um, we would hopefully marry well. Um, and, you know, our family was lower middle class when I was very young, then became middle class, then as his business grew, because he was also an entrepreneur, um, became very rapidly um, much more financially stable, I guess is the way to put it. And he made a lot of very smart decisions with his money and was able to retire at 59 um, and hasn't worked a day since, and he just turned 75. And he's um, very comfortable and has done very well. Always worries about the market, but it's very comfortable. Um, my story was that because I didn't really have any education about money, and while I knew that we had money at a certain period in my upbringing, um, didn't really understand consciously, I think, what had happened there in my family. Um, I started out with a very solid education, albeit I put myself through law school. My father covered my undergraduate education for the most part, and um, our agreement was always at graduate school I would be on my own. So I put myself through law school and ran up a ton of student loans, and then basically within a year or two was making six figures out of law school and um, made an awful lot of money and didn't save it and didn't do anything beyond the kind of standard 401k in terms of investing and, um, you know, found myself about, I'd say, 12 years later when I decided to start my business, suddenly going, how is it the case that I made millions? Because, you know, I do look back on this, and this was really my point of shame to get back to your original question, made millions and had nothing to show for it except fundamentally a mountain of debt because my student loans still weren't paid off, a lot of credit card debt, um, which has been something that I've really had to master in the last eight years or so, um, and have, thank goodness, which is where we get to the point of pride, um, um, but, but really had no, um, no conception of how to have a relationship with money. Um, and the spending part also came, of course, because these things always do, right, from my family of origin, because my mother, who um, divorced my father when I was a teenager, was someone who had a relationship to money where um, it was spent as soon as she had it. And it was, I'd say, by far one of the most fractious issues of their marriage when I was growing up um, because my father was so conservative and careful, and my mother was um, someone who would just spend it as fast as she could find it. And, um, you know, there were some stories as well about her doing things with credit and money that were not discussed in the marriage before she did them. Um, and so I had, a, I had, on the one hand, a very conservative father with money who didn't share with me how to manage it or even really have a relationship with it or what he was doing with it that was obviously benefiting him so well. And simultaneously, a mother who, uh, you know, to be very candid about it, used money very much like a drug. And, 
you know, would go on huge shopping sprees. And then when I was a teenager, began taking me along on those. And those were experiences of bonding with my mother that were simultaneously shameful because it was like we were keeping some big secret about how much money had been spent. Um, and so I learned very early, I suppose, that um, I didn't have to look at it and I could spend it, <laughs> I guess is the way to put it. And that's how I landed where I was in my mid-30s, which um, at that point, despite an enormous amount of success, um, became fairly untenable um, and led to, you know, a few very, very, to be candid about it, very, very tough years there for myself, my husband, and my family when I started my business. Um, where, you know, we were scraping by for a, for a while, and I've learned a lot from that, and now um, am back to a place of, of really doing quite well, um, better than I've ever done in terms of earning, um, by long shot, actually. Um, but nonetheless, um, I still feel as though I have a lot to learn. And it's, it's a place where now I'm, I'm kind of comfortable talking about it. I've learned the things that I'm really good at. You know, obviously, you know I've done your course, so I've done a lot of work there, too. <laughs> And um, I've learned what I'm really good at with money. I'm also learning what I don't know and what I need to learn more about. And I'm um, working very much to kind of overcome the fear associated with that. But the place that I have a, a place of pride right now, I guess, in relation to it is that um, I'm a very good earner, I think is the way to put it. Like the one thing that I have never really struggled with in terms of money for whatever reason is the belief that I could earn. And even in those two years where things were very tough, um, and, and, you know, got very scary for a little while there. Um, I always knew that because of my work ethic and because of my belief in myself and because I was doing something in this incarnation of my business that was truly my purpose and my mission that um, the door would open again. I guess that's the way to put it. So that's a very long answer to a very short question there. Sorry. Well, you just, no, sorry. You just answered, like, my next three questions, you know, all, all rolled up into one. Which is wonderful. So we'll go into it a little further, you know, a little mm -hmm. deeper. Um, but first up is, you know, how did you, I mean, earning can be such mm -hmm. an issue for so many people, men and women, but certainly way more mm -hmm. women. It's an issue of value. It's an issue of believing in themselves. How did you know you could earn a good amount of money? How did you, like, how how has that been such a natural skill set for you. Yeah, it's, I think there's two things that I would point to in that regard. I mean, I did have the luck of having a father that despite um, his reluctance to discuss financial issues, nonetheless raised his daughter to believe that we could kind of do anything regardless of gender. And I was the oldest of all the kids. That um, I was, that meant, yeah, it <laughs> mm -hmm. meant a couple of things. It did mean that there was a lot of pressure on me. Um, you know, I can remember sitting on my dad's lap when I was five years old and asking him what college was. And he said, well, college is where you go to be able to learn a skill so you can make money. And if you went to Harvard, that would be nice. Um, and, you know, he had me IQ tested at the University of Pennsylvania when I was three years old, and I skipped two grades in elementary school. So um, there, you know, there, is, there was a lot of, um, of belief in my capacity from a very young age and also a lot of pressure, to be candid. Um, yeah. And so, you know, some of that was internalized. There's no doubt that um, my work ethic, even to this day, um, is, is very, very strong. And I actually have to write time into my calendar to rest. <laughs> um, because if I don't do that, like the beginning of 2016, I, I started taking every Wednesday off purposefully and not putting things on the calendar, and even sometimes I still don't stick to it. 
because with my kids on the weekends and my time during the week, um, I wasn't getting a break. Um, so, so that's a part of it is that I, I am a very hard worker. Um, but I will say with regard to the earnings, um, you know, it's funny, looking back on it and sort of reflecting on it, what I can remember particularly coming out of law school was the sense that um, there was a certain point where it would be enough for me. You know, I can remember being asked a question um, when I was in high school where one of our teachers said to us, well, how much money do you think you're going to need to make before you'll feel like you've made it? And, you know, that was the mid-'80s, right? Um, and I, I said $250,000 a year. And so I think I had always had my eye on a certain high number um, from a very – and I don't know where I got that number from, but that was the number. Um, and then I, I was able to make that um, even in base salary, not including bonuses, by the time I had been a lawyer for maybe about six or seven years. And so that was the point where I was like, wow, I've hit that target. But before that point, there was always a sort of striving, and there was always a lot of negotiation and – um, you know, I also got pushback from that. You know, there were plenty of people who said that I was too aggressive and that I was too strong-willed, and all the gender dynamics came into that in terms of <laughs> how I was perceived because, you know, every guy around me was also fighting for more money. Um, and uh, and I was certainly among those who was always advocating that I was worth more. Um, and so that, that worked to my benefit, but there were also negatives to that. Um, and I think that the difference between where I am now and how, you know, emerging from this post-recession period, which also coincidentally was the time that I started my business, and so the timing was really bad. You know, we gutted my retirement, and um, what, what little savings we had went down to nothing, and there were, you know, there were weekends where we were really scraping by, scary times, even after I had my kids. Um, now, it's interesting, because in the last 18 months, it's really been a mindset shift that has gotten me to a place, I think, of being able to leap past, you know, and I know that number is very high, but it's arbitrary, right? 250K to me was like an arbitrary out of thin air kind of number. To, to be able to leap way past that now um, ha, has been about trusting in the flow. Um, and, you know, not to get too esoteric or spiritual about it, but that mindset shift was a long time coming, right? I'm 45 years old now. Um, and I think I had always had this sort of um, scarcity mentality, even while I was earning a lot. And some of that came from the fact that I was spending all of it too, right? I wasn't pooling money. I wasn't building wealth. There was, oh, I was living paycheck to paycheck when I was on Wall Street, even though I was making enormous amounts of money. And so now there's this sense that, um, and I think some of this also has to do with lining up your work with your mission, right? Um, I can't imagine doing anything other than what I'm doing now, right? You know, like, I'm, I'm doing great work for women leaders all the time. I'm consulting in some of the biggest corporations in the country and building leadership programs for their teams. And, um, and I'm helping people to lead better lives in addition to the fact that I'm, I'm, you know, kind of pride myself on being at the forefront of growing the next generation of women leaders. But it wasn't until I got to a place of realizing that um, I didn't have to fight so hard that I could line up with what I was really good at and expect that, the money would flow because I'm good at what I do and I hold myself to very high standards, of course, but that I could trust um, that if one thing didn't play out, there was a reason for that and that it usually meant, um, and again, a lot of this just comes with life experience, I think, but it, if something didn't work out, it usually meant that something much better was coming down the pike right after it. 
So let's talk about the underbelly of that because you've been able to go after really big goals and dreams mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. big money ceilings. You know, what was 250000 in the 80s compared to what that would be now, you know, as a number. Yep. I, you know, that's interesting. But So you've been able to, you know, set a clear goal, break through it, go for it, ask for it, you know, negotiate mm-hmm. all of that. And then there's been this underbelly that you were saying was happening since teenager years where you were watching yep. your dad um, be a more strategic, even frugal, you know, businessman. Mm-hmm. And then mom was playing out a really different pattern. She was yep. just fully spending. Now, before you were watching them, and then I want to talk about more of your underbelly, but do you, what was your natural role? Was it more of a spender or of a saver, or did you not even know that? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think I, I think I did know that I was more naturally a spender, and I, okay. I have this recollection of, um, you know, when I was a little kid and we would get our allowances, we had these kind of candy corn containers. I'm dating myself right now, but these little plastic candy corn containers that we would use as piggy banks, and me and my sister each had one in our bottom drawer in our room. And I can remember that, you know, I, I'd go into my sister's room and we'd be playing or whatever, and she always had money in her candy corn container. <laughs> and I can remember looking at that going, what is she, why isn't she just spending it on, like, candy or Barbies or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, or guinea pigs, as the case with, you know, because I cared much more about my animals than I did about my Barbies. Um, and, and I was the one who never had it, you know. And I, I remember being in that place quite, quite, quite clearly. Um, you know, I mean, I must have been about eight years old at that yeah. memory. Yeah. Yes. So I you always like, liked nice things, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think that's part okay. of it. It's that, and and even to this day, let me just say this, you know. I mean, I I love to have a beautiful home, and I haven't been able to have that, you know, for a while. I'm in one now, and one of the things that has been wonderful about it is being able to be financially stable and still surround myself with a lot of beauty. And my standards of that might have changed a bit, right? You know, like I'm half my house is furnished from IKEA, but it's very well chosen. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. But nonetheless. Like, beauty matters to me. And I think, you know, one of the other lessons about the last few years has been that I can cultivate beauty in my life without having to have it be, like, a label, right? Um, That it can be more about the aesthetics that I choose than about it being Prada or Gucci or whatever. So that's a significant leap there. That's a significant shift, you know. And to even go back to eight years old and realize, no, naturally – you it wasn't that you were the spender but you had more desires you wanted more things but it and you said nice things but it was it was more than nice things it was animals mm-hmm. wanting to take care yep. of them or you know or, and mm-hmm. you and I share that because my sister and brother had a bank they each had banks and they were saving at 5 8 10 years old and i was like well what about that ring for my mom at the school fair or what about candy mm-hmm. or you know i always wanted things there were things that I wanted, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I get it. I get it. So it's, it is interesting to go back to that eight-year-old and just see what the natural desire is, right? Because mm-hmm. we can put a judgment or label on it, um, spender. But you just had a lot of wants and desires. There were a lot of things that you yeah. were interested in, you know. And they're all yeah. about your values. And part of it, you're saying, is beauty, and how can that really be represented in a healthy way? Okay. Mm-hmm. So, but the underbelly that I think continued was. So this is you at eight years old, then you watching your parents as a teenager and the different patterns and things that they were living out and then passing on to you. And then you were very clear about your goals, but then underbelly was of the spending versus the saver. 
or there was still spending. There was just more spending yep. instead of how the heck do you even save? What does that even yeah. mean to you? And I know you've done a yep. lot of internal work around what that even means. Like, what does that mean to contain money? What does that mean to save for taxes? What does that mean to send the money away? Mm -hmm. What does that mean to think about the future? So give me a deeper sense of what you've learned about savings and what that means to you. Yeah. How you've been able well, to so, shift into that. Yeah. It's, you know, the, I think that having children actually changed this for me quite a bit. Um and I, I imagine it does for many people. But um, because education was such a major value of my family growing up, the idea of saving for my children's education was a no-brainer. And what that meant was that even when my daughter was born, um, and, and, you know, it was still, you know, it was two years into my business when she was born. But, you know, nonetheless, we were still really struggling to get off the ground. And, I, you know, to be fair about it, when I started my business, I still did pretty well for a first-year executive coach, right? Like, you know, I wasn't, um, you know, I, I've heard stories of executive coaches who, who couldn't land 10 clients in their first year, and that was not me. I was very well-networked. But nonetheless, it was, you know, a, it was easily like an 80% salary drop or something like that in the first couple of years. Um, but what was non-negotiable for me was that I was going to start saving for my children's education. And even in the months where, things were incredibly rough. I was still dropping 200 bucks a month into a 529 account for my kids each. And then I gradated it up and it became the automated savings actually helped me quite a bit yeah. because yeah. it was just an assumption that it was coming out that I didn't have it, that, you know, it needed to be in there and, it, you know, and, and having it automatically come out of your checking account means that if you're looking at your budget, of course, you know, <laughs> if you're looking at what you've got, um, you know, that money has to be in there. Um, so, you know, I, that, that was really, I think, um, one turning point was that that was a non-negotiable for me. You know, okay. nothing this else was This is a non-negotiable value for you and priority for yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So that was really one turning point. But then, you know, the second one actually became about um, learning. Uh, I mean, I guess the way to put it is that I started thinking about the idea of pooling. And, the image of safety, I did, you know, I've done a lot of work with Lindsay Para, who I know you're familiar with, and she's been my, um, my coach, my mastermind head for the last 18 months or so, um, and a lot of the money work that I've done in conjunction with the money work I've done with you through your course um, has been by diving really deeply into what security and safety means for me, okay. um, because what I realized was that I had been cultivating um, this consistent sense of insecurity by how I had been behaving with money. And that that had done certain things to me physically because I was constantly firing in panic mode, right? <laughs> like fight or flight response on all the time, that it was having an adverse effect on my relationships. Um, and it really got to a point where I had to say, you know, what would it feel like to not have to feel like this anymore? Um, in some sense, you know, you could kind of call it a rock bottom, I guess, but it got to a point where I thought I just don't want to be scared anymore about whether I'm going to be able to feed my kids next month. And I always, I always got pulled it together. Don't get me wrong. Like there was never a moment of like sheer panic where we didn't have a place to live or we weren't going to be able to make our rent or anything like that. But there were moments that for me were very frightening. Um, and I got to a point, I think, where I was like, I, this is, this is not, this doesn't work for me anymore. And I began to work with the image of um, the idea of just money pooling around my feet, 
what would it feel like to be able to look out at having um, this support under my feet that allowed me to feel a sense of safety. Um, and once I started working with that, it, you know, it, it was also true that my business started exploding and there were other things that happened that I view as being spiritually connected, of course, um, because I was doing the internal work and the external was reflecting that. Um, but it also meant that I started making very different choices. You know, I don't use credit cards anymore. Um, I have one American Express card that I pay off every month um, that I use for, for points. For your business? It. For your business? Yeah. I have, I have a biz, one business card that's an American Express and one personal card that's an American Express that really only gets used for emergencies. Um, and I don't use credit cards anymore at all. Um, you know, my dad is trying to talk me into getting one of those, like, high-value points cards right now, and I still don't quite trust myself enough to get something that has a line of credit attached to it um, and pay it off every month. I would much rather have it come out of a debit account. Um, but, you know, I have, a, I have a SEP IRA account set up through my business. Um, you know, I've made some choices in the last couple of years. I hired a, a very... Um, shall I put this, cutting-edged bookkeeping team that I, I'm sure you're familiar with, the guys that Evolve Finance. They work with a lot of women business owners. Um, and they've really helped to get me on the straight and narrow in terms of um, making solid financial decisions for my business. Um, and I also have a very new um, CPA who I'm working with who's kind of converting us to an S-corp and doing all those sorts of things. But a big turning point, I think, from the savings front was also that by saving well and saving through my business, I was actually going to make more money, right? Um, so, you know, being able to use a SEP IRA to offset some tax concerns when you're running a business like mine um, is a huge incentive. <laughs> um, but I think truly the, the biggest, if I had to point to the biggest turning point, it was the idea that I could pool money and that would be safe for me rather than having it be um, a point of control. And that all originates back to my family of origin. You know, I mean, I think that one of the things about the interesting dynamic between my parents was that my mother's spending habits really triggered my dad, and that triggered him to try to get control over her. And so my perception of what it meant to spend was that spending was enjoyable, but you had to do it secretly, and that you never knew when all the availability was going to be taken away from you. Because there are stories about my dad cutting up my mother's credit cards numerous times, right, um, in our family history. And so it was the idea that it was fun until it wasn't, and you better do it fast, and you better spend it all while you had it, because somebody was going to come in and take it away. Um, and so that's, in doing all my work, that's the real lesson that I've taken from my childhood about where my habits came from. And I had to get to a place of realizing that, a, I didn't have to replicate that pattern for myself. I didn't have to be both my mother and my father in that dynamic, right? Um, but also that the true capacity to pool money um, in ways that allowed you to no longer be afraid was something I was ready to step into. And that was really the turning point, I think. And that's only in the last 18 months, Barry, being really candid about it. You know, it's mm -hmm. taken me a long yeah. time to get yeah. to this place. And we all need to hear this, right? We all need to hear this because on the surface we see it looks really nice, it's all put together, but you're saying this is really in, in your 40s in the last 18 months. Mm -hmm. So can you take us back to, I have a few questions here. I mean, I'm, sure. I, would love, I would love to hear um, a memory that you have when you're actually playing out that spending pattern of like spending uh, really secretly 
um, or hiding it? You know, was that still playing out? Um, there's there's that. There's also you you've really touched on this in many different ways, but I'd love one really clear story about it. What is one of the biggest money um, challenges that you've had to overcome? Mm. Do they touch on each other like this? This image they do. Yeah, secretly they really Okay. Do. <laughs> <laughs> they really do. So there was a point about. Um, I'd say about 11 years ago when I was still practicing law and I was trying for like the nth time to get a handle on my credit card debt. Um, and, you know, the, the crazy thing pre-recession was that if you were me and you were working at a big law firm in New York City, the law firms often had relationships with banking institutions. So you would instantly become a private banking client. And for people who don't know what that means, what that means is that you get all sorts of perks, right? You get credit cards with enormous limits. Like I, you know, when I started at the very last job that I had on Wall Street, they handed me a credit card with a $43,000 limit on it, like out of the blue, right? And again, this is pre-recession. This was like, you know, before, but, you know, you could get credit very easily if you had my kind of a profile. Um, and you worked with a, with a firm that did billions of dollars of business every year with a particular banking institution. And um, that was a bad thing for me, <laughs> to be very candid about it, to be handed that much money because I perceived it, and it wasn't money. This is the other thing. I perceived it as money, right? Um, and it was credit. And, um, you know, huge debts got run up. You know, I, I tapped out. There was one point where that credit card was completely tapped out, to be candid. And I can remember trying to get a handle on all of my credit card debt about 11 years ago. Um, and the thing that I never wanted to do was talk to my dad about my debt because that was an enormous point of shame for me. It was this thing of how is it that I can't get control of this? How is it that I can't master this? I'm a huge success in every other area of my life, yeah. and this is the place where I, I can't get a handle on it, right? And, you know, he knew because, you know, he, see, he saw me, right? He knew that I was walking around with Fendi bags, right? He knew that I was walking around in $500 pairs of shoes, right? He couldn't have missed it, right? But what he didn't know was how I was doing that because I never really talked to him about it. And so there was a point about 11 years ago where I finally was like, I need to ask my dad what I should do about this um, because I don't understand how I'm supposed to get out from under this. Yeah, and what shifted so inside of you for you, be, for you to be able to go to your father, who's such a role model, and yet it was even bringing up a sense of shame and even imagining. Like, yeah. Um, you know, it was an interesting point in my life because it, it actually coincided with um, the death of – so I lost my best friend at 36. Well, I guess, I, guess she, I was 35 and she was 36. Um, she, she had a brain aneurysm and died very – died the next day. And literally I had talked to her two days before – um, she had been moving into a new house. The movers had been moving in, and she had a brain aneurysm in her kitchen, and she was dead the next day. And I had never lost anybody my own age. And that point in time for me was um, – it changed everything. You know, it was a, it was the sense that um, all of a sudden there was no more messing around. And while, of course, grief does funny things to people, right? Um, you know, I mean, I look back on it now and realize that I had about a year there where I was completely spun out. Um, where I didn't function very well, and, it, and also it led to great things, right? Like it led to me deciding that I no longer wanted to be a lawyer, but it also led to a place of 
certain things becoming untenable. And one of the things that became untenable was the idea that I was going to be in this, the kind of debt that I was in forever, right? Um, that, that things had to change because life could be short. And I didn't want all of it to be taken up with stress and strain and unhappiness and not living on my purpose and not doing something for a living that was aligned with my mission. And that event in and of itself was the seed for, in the long run, some massive shifts. And so I think it was within about three months of her passing that I decided I had to sit down with my dad because he was the only person who I could think of that I could talk to about all of this, right? Um, and I think I knew somewhere that even if he was going to get very judgy about how I would gotten to where I was, that nonetheless he was my dad. And, you know, we're, we are very tight. I have always had a sense of unconditional love from him, um, notwithstanding all of the pressure, right? Um, I always knew that he had my back. And so um, it was very, very painful, but I sat down with my dad, at 35 and showed him my entire financial picture, which I had never done before then. And I was still carrying at that point $60,000 in student loans and I had credit card debt that was easily above 50. Um, and that was a really frightening moment, right? And he also did all the right things. <laughs> he said, you know, you need, to, you need to go and negotiate for lower rates on your credit cards. You need to finally do a budget because I had never lived on a budget before. And he gave me spreadsheets. Um, you know, he, and again, like I started to get a real insight to his financial mastery because he had built his own Excel spreadsheet retirement projection. Of course <laughs> based he on did. Age <laughs> and average return and everything else. And, and, you know, he started sharing all of these tools that he had built for himself with me. Um, and that didn't mean, it still took me a few years to really even start to get a complete handle on all of it. Um, but one thing that it did do was it made me, um, it made me very powerfully aware of the way in which that shame was undercutting everything that I was doing without me even being conscious of it. Because the moment of having – I'll never forget it. Like the moment of having to sit down in front of a computer with my dad and pull up my credit card statements online yeah. was really painful. It was yeah. really painful. Yeah. Um, and what an incredibly brave moment to just say I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it I'm gonna have this conversation mm -hmm. I trust I ultimately trust him he's been there for me this is scary as all hell I mean mm -hmm. were you holding your breath do you remember did you prepare or did you just like run in going okay let's just look oh down. no I prepared I prepared yeah. and I can remember feeling really nauseous like you know it, almost that moment like when you know sitting there in front of the computer and pulling up the statement and showing him the balances and. I, I can remember, it's that moment where, like, the world kind of tilts a little bit, where you have to confront what you've done, right? <laughs> like, you can, it, like, it's the thing of, like, I've been hiding, I've been talking myself out of it, I haven't showed this to anybody, and now here's the mirror, and the mirror is the person who, whose opinion matters more to me than anyone's, right? Um, and, and, yeah, it was, a, it was a hard moment. And, you know, I'll also say that it, it didn't, it wasn't all easy after that. You know, I mean, there were, there were conversations, particularly post-recession when I started my business, where my dad was adamantly opposed to my living in New York City and where he said, you know, you're living in one of the most expensive places in the country. Your choices are not lining up with your capacity right now as you grow this business. Um, you know, and at the same time, he also let me have it, right? He didn't say, I'm swooping in to rescue you, right? Because that's not his style. You know, he was, he was prepared to let me think. 
um, if that was what needed to happen. But there was a lot of tough love that came down the pike from him. And I got to tell you, like, I'm really grateful for it because I feel like where I am right now, you know, having, you know, this year I will make twice as much money at least as what I ever made when I was on Wall Street. And I am now in a position where I know the value of that. And I, I will never again look at money the same way, you know, and, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that um, what I have gotten from him now is an understanding of not just the discipline, but the careful alignment of your choices to your values when it comes to money that have forever shifted the way I feel about it. And I got that from him. You know, I got it from him. There's no question. Mm, what an incredible blessing, y- your relationship with him. Mm-hmm. And I still call him up, you know. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it is a huge blessing. My dad is, the, you know, one of the biggest blessings of my life. There's no question about it. But I will say that I also am thinking now about how do I become um, as knowledgeable as he is independently because I am still prone. Okay. I just did this two weeks ago, right? Like, so, you know, I, I've got my step IRA set up and I'm, you know, I'm pooling money very well right now. And I'm, we're having conversations about emergency funds and all this other stuff. And I'm investing, you know, I'm doing all the right stuff. I still call my dad up and say, okay, if I've got an extra $10,000 this month, where should I put it? What, tell me, tell me which Vanguard funds I should be sticking it in, right? Rather than doing like my own Morningstar research and everything else that goes along with that, because I still have this underlying, you know, and this is still my work, right? It's going to be, it's a lifelong process, right? But um, I still have this underbelly of sense of, I don't know what I'm doing sometimes, um, which is crazy because in every other area, right, I know that if I put the work and the focus into it, I can master it. Um, And I was literally just journaling about this. I'm doing all my forward planning for the next year right now. And I was just journaling about this yesterday that, one of my big money goals for 2017 um, is to truly master the knowledge that I want to have so that I am confident that I can make those choices without asking him if I'm right. Okay, okay. So you're needing to differentiate, separate a bit from him, even though he's a wonderful support and resource for you. And it's similar to um, we, we need a financial support team like you've been adding right. over the last few years. We need the bookkeeper. We need the accountant. We need the financial coach. We, you know, and then we certainly need to study on our own as well, but it's, it's great to have that team. So he's someone on your team. But the way that you rely yeah. on him, there's something in there that feels um, that you want, to, you, you want to reference from within more. I want to be a grown-up, okay. right? You know, so that's, that's part of it also is that, you know, here I am, I'm 45. My dad is 75 years old now. This is the other thing is I look toward this and I know that, um, how shall I put this? I know that they are still very well off. And they have also, my dad and my stepmother have been very candid that they will not tell us what their estate is worth because they want us to save for our own retirement do our own smart financial management and become um, good at it, right? And I, and I feel like I'm, I'm well along that path now. Don't get me wrong. But I also look at it and I say to myself, you know, I hope my dad lives to be 95. His mother is 96. You know, there's a very good chance that he will make it quite a long way. Um, but there will come a point where I'm going to need to be able to make those decisions anyway, 
And if I happen to inherit some money, which I am so not counting on, but if I happen to inherit some money, I'm also going to need to make good choices about that. Um, and, you know, so some of it is about being practical um, about the future. Uh, and some of it is also about wanting um, – and, you know, I talked to – my dear friend Amanda Steinberg, who I know you know as well, who's very front and center about women and money, she and I have had a number of very in-depth conversations about why it is that so many women walk around feeling like they don't know what they're doing with money. And so in part because I am so much on the front of women's leadership and so driven toward um, helping women to step onto, into their own power, um, I am very conscious of the fact that this is a place where I don't yet feel like I completely own mine. And so that's part of the work, right? And, and I'll tell you, I probably will still call my dad up from now until forever and say, this is what I'm doing, is that right? Yeah. But what I won't need to do, where I'm trying to get to, is that I don't need to call him up and say, give me the name of the fund, right? Where I can say, this is what I'm looking at, this is the research I've done, this is the, how, how I'm rebalancing my portfolio this year, tell me, you know, if this lines up with what you would do, rather than saying, tell me what to do, if that makes sense. That makes it, yeah, it, it makes sense, and that's a great distinction right there. So you've answered one of my last, one of, one of my last two questions, which is just what's on the horizon for the next six months, year, and you mentioned quite a few things. One is you want to become grown up. You, you want to grow up around money. Mm -hmm. Your own definition, how you're doing that. And you want to you know, keep meeting with your financial support team. Of course, you're going to keep going to your dad, but you're not going to ask him what to do. Say, say that distinction again one more time. Yeah, so it's that I don't want to ask him what to do. I want to say to him, this is what I'm doing. What do you think about that, okay. right? Um, that feels meaning that you. It feels very different for me because it's, the, it, it's, it's knowing, it's almost like learning a language, right? Um, this is how I'm looking at learning about, making investment choices for now, for instance, is that if I can speak the language of my choices, then the nuances of the value of the choices becomes clear, right? So if I can say to my dad, I'm putting 75% in this stock index fund and 25% in this international index fund, um, is that what you would do at my age, right? That's a very different choice from saying, tell me where to put the money, if yeah. that makes sense, right? And just blindly following the advice. Um, I want to have a, I want to have as much of a depth of understanding of what I'm doing there um, as I do in any other area of my life. And I pride myself on being many many layers deep. <laughs> yeah. So um, so so this is that's that's one place that I'm heading. But I have a few other things on the horizon too, which I'm happy to share. <laughs> So we can go there, and I do have one burning question, and I know sure. we don't have that much time, but it's it's about couples and money, and yes. it's about a really significant shift that's happening in your life. So I'd love to end this way, knowing that there's still so much more to your money story and your money memoir and what you're learning and where you're growing and all of it. Um, and this may, may feel sensitive or may it's just sensitive to me. I know that you're a mama of two very young mm -hmm. little kiddos. I mm -hmm. know that um, you've recently separated from your husband. And mm -hmm. I know that you've been making a lot of the money for years. Mm -hmm. We can spend time on each of those, right? But But can you paint a little picture on 
both uh, the challenge of that um, in your relationship, in that relationship, um, and where that's going well. But both of those. Yeah. So a couple, a couple of stories. Yeah. So you know, I I married someone who. Um, I used to joke about this, but the year that I met him, um, I made about a hundred times what he did. <laughs> um, he was an actor when we met. He was an artist, and um, he was working as a bartender for his living expenses at the time. Um, and he was a very, very good actor. Um, but he was somebody who was very driven to theater and was doing kind of off-Broadway work here in New York. And there's not a lot of money in that, frankly. Um, and I knew what I was doing. You know, I mean, I, I knew I, it was a time pre-recession. I was on Wall Street. Like I said, I was making a lot of money. And the arrangement that we had from the beginning was that I was going to support him while he pursued his art. Um, and I subsequently put him through culinary school when he decided he wanted to go back and become a chef. Um, and then when our kids came along, um, we decided that he would be a stay-at-home dad. And he stayed home with our kids for the first three years. Um, and I was the and sole financial support. how did you feel support. about that? Yeah, how did that feel to you at the time? Um, it, you know, it, it's interesting. It was a mixed bag because there was a part of me that was very attracted to the idea of busting stereotypes. Um, you know, I've always been a little bit of a rebel and I wanted, um, very much to show and model a different way of doing things because I believe that women can do anything. I believe that women can do anything that men can do. And I also believe that, the gender stereotyping around earning and success and providing, quote, unquote, and all that sort of stuff has harmed men as much as it's harmed women. Um, you know, I know so many men who, have, who are incredible nurturers and great parents and stay home with their kids and do a phenomenal job doing it. And, um, you know, I love that our society allows for that now in ways that it didn't even 25 years ago. Um, and, you know, my husband was very proud of it as well. I should say that, you know, like, he went on the Katie Couric show with his stay-at-home dad's group and talked about how much he loved being a stay-at-home dad. And there were aspects of it that I think he really did enjoy. And he also came front and center to a lot of the things I think that any stay-at-home parent comes front and center to, which is that when you're surrounded by people who can't communicate, <laughs> who are little kids all day long, and you're isolated, and I think for stay-at-home dads, they're even more isolated because they're still only 10% of the population of stay-at-home parents, um, it can be really tough. And you know, it, that time period did coincide with, um, you know, my business was starting to take off, but we were still struggling quite a bit financially. And that, um, it led to a lot of strife. You know, I will say that we've separated for reasons that have nothing to do with money now, um, but that during that time period, most of our arguments were about money. Um, and, you know, we, we share very different money profiles because for me, I, you know, we're circling back to where we started, but I had always been very confident about my capacity to earn. And I always knew that no matter how bad it got, there was going to be a light at the end of the tunnel. My husband is somebody who had never really earned a lot of money, um, you know, had never earned anywhere near the amount of money that I had made, certainly. Um, and I don't think when faced with the kind of numbers that we were facing was able to really even process what they meant. Um, I think, you know, he got flooded and scared <laughs> when he would look at our debt load. <laughs> and what that meant was that I ended up doing what is already my natural pro proclivity anyway, which is that I took it all over. Okay. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying I would recommend that. <laughs> you know, I mean, money dates are something that, um, that 
you know, I certainly tried to have at certain points in our marriage, um, and, and I wasn't too successful at that. And, uh, you know, that's something that I'll be taking forward as, as something to master down the road, I think. Um, because I, my solution to it all was just to do it all myself. And that was a lot of pressure to bear. You know, I was the only person looking at the numbers for a very long time. And, you know, to be responsible for two little kids, a husband, and two dogs, <laughs> um, you know, for, for an extended number of years in very scary financial circumstances where you're the only person who's responsible either for fixing it or for managing it, um, you know, it burnt me out. You know, I think a lot of the adrenal fatigue and stress that I had um, for a couple of years there was directly related to that. So that's one thing that um, I've definitely learned going forward. But, you know, we sit now in a very different place. And what I will say um, for my husband is that he is um, an incredibly good person with a very kind heart. And our separation has been as amicable as any separation that I have ever encountered. Um, and it also has brought me face-to-face -face with the fact that we make commitments in life, right? And even if the commitments that he and I made when we got married are shifting now, the commitments that I've made to my family are in many ways stronger than they have ever been. And I am not troubled by, in any way, shape, or form by the financial support that I'm going to have to provide going forward for my family, whether I'm still married to him or not, <laughs> um, for the foreseeable future because I love them all and I care about them very deeply. And, you know, so part of my, I think, getting much more grounded in my financial responsibilities has also been about um, deciding what I care about. And what I care about is um, providing for people that I love, even in circumstances where um, we may not be married anymore, right? And, and, and I will do that. You know, we're not divorced. We haven't filed. You know, that there's still a lot of ground to be covered there. But, um, you know, I, I have always been accused of being a very generous person. And what I will say is that this circumstance in particular has brought out um, a refusal in me to abide by um, all of the dynamics that we're supposed to adopt when people are getting divorced, right? I am not going to quibble over money, right, in this circumstance. And I, and I think that while there are boundaries that will be set, um, it's very much in the interest of my children and their health and wellness and futures and future relationships and everything, really, um, to be as kind as humanly possible as I can be in this circumstance. Um, and that in and of itself has been a huge money lesson for me um, and continues to be. Um, but it's also made me want to, um, in the words of Michelle Obama, go high in every circumstance. Yeah. So give me a, one last concrete example of so money dates. My sense is you took the role of I'm going to do this all by myself because I have to, and mm -hmm. I like to be in control here, and I'm the one who knows how to do this more than he does. Um, mm -hmm. and I'm the one making the money. And so mm -hmm. you would have money dates kind of off on your own with your spreadsheets. Would you yep. try to sit him down with the numbers and it would be a deer in the headlights? Would you? So I, I want a little sense of, like, was there ever money dates and give me a little teeny scenario? And then now that yeah. you're operating, um, how is it different? Like, what are you doing different even in – the separation, because my sense is you two are talking about money in a different way as you yes, are separating. Yes, we are. Yeah, we are. 
Um, so the way that it was before was that um, periodically I would get really angry. <laughs> and I would say to him, I can't do this all on my own anymore, right? You know, it's like too much pressure. I at least need you to be in the loop about what we're doing, right, and the choices that I'm making and where we are. And one of the ways in which this manifested in, uh, in specifics was that um, I had given him the login password to our debit card over and over and over and over again in the marriage, and he never set up an online account for himself. <laughs> so he would come to me and say, do we have $100 so I can go grocery shopping? Do we have $50 so I can do this? Um, and it was literally that, gr that granular. And my frustration was, you know, you can, you know, you can look at this yourself, right? Like I have it all set up and systematized and all of our payments are automatic and you can go look at it, your, at yourself, at it yourself if you would care to. Um, and, he and didn't I know how to, he didn't know how to, right? He didn't know. He well, didn't I don't, know I think there was also, I think his attitude toward debt was that um, because a big chunk of it was mine, he had his own as well. You know, he had his own student loans and things like that, lines of credit, um, you know, I think the perception was that the numbers were so frightening to him that he just chose the kind of ostrich way of handling it, which is that Elizabeth is so much better at this. Let me let her do it. And, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to criticize him in doing this. I think it was a natural reaction to a lot of stress, frankly. Um, and that's a not, natural dynamic that happens. It's a natural dynamic that happens with so many couples. We polarize. So that's yep. how you two polarized. Yeah. That's how we did it. And now things are very, very different. Because one of the things that I insisted upon when we separated was that he had to go out and get his own checking account and that he had to start depositing his own paychecks into that checking account and that he was responsible for that. Um, and those, that account is still linked to my account. Um, but it has changed things quite a bit because there's not any longer that kind of check-in thing that happened, um, which often made me feel like I was mom rather than wife, um, you know, and that was really hard on me uh, in a lot of ways, I think. Um, but it's also meant that um, when I do provide for our family or his living expenses or something that our children need, um, that's something that there's a discussion about. And so, um, you know, he knows exactly where we are now. Um, and we're also talking about some very um, concrete and I think unusual ways of crafting an exit. You know, I'm talking about buying him an apartment um, so that he doesn't have to worry about his living expenses while we're in New York. Um, and that's something that, you know, again, lots of things to be discussed there, but they're very honest, responsible, mature conversations. Um, and I think that that is deeply grounded in how much we both love our children and how much we care about them and how easy we want it to make it on them now because the last couple of years weren't very easy on them while we were deciding to separate. Um, and wanting things to not uh, feel to them like they have to take on the stress of it. Um, and so that's a, that's a shift that has been really positive. I mean, honestly, like, our separation is going great, and you know, I, I'm, I'm. It's another point of real pride for me that we are, we are being as kind as humanly possible in the exit um, around money and everything else. And you know, I am hopeful that um, one of the things that that will mean is that we'll continue to be family. You know, I'm sitting here in my house while we're taping this today, and I have four Christmas stockings hanging in front of me, and one of them has his name on it because that's who we are. 
right? And it, again, you know, we've never looked like a traditional family, and that's not going to change now even in this exit. Um, but what I will say is that it's important to me now to have all of us feel secure um, because I think that that, in some sense, um, creates a trust that maybe has been lacking in the past. And, you know, if I'm the one who has to do that for us, I'm happy to take it on. Elizabeth, it's been an incredible honor to hear some of your money stories. Um, this is, you know, it, it's an, it's really incredible to get a behind-the-scenes glimpse of such um, intimate stories and experiences in your life. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for joining me with this Money Memoir interview. I really hope you found something here to take with you, whether it was a lesson, some inspiration, or even just a little grace for yourself and where you are in your money journey. If you're feeling called to wade deeper here, please pack your financial goals, soul deep aspirations, and grab your favorite person. The Art of Money is a holistic framework that integrates money healing, money practices, and money maps and blends therapeutic body-based practices with real-life tools that we all need to create healthy, sustainable change in our money lives. So if you'd like to begin your money healing journey with the art of money today, learn more at barrytesler.com.